Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Foundation. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. I'm a legal fellow here in the Mies Legal Center, and thank you for coming. Uh, on July 9th, President Donald Trump nominated Judge Brett Kavanaugh to become an associate justice on the Supreme Court and succeed his former boss, Justice Anthony Kennedy. Trump called Kavanaugh a judge's judge and noted that he's regarded as one of the finest and sharpest legal minds of our time. For the past 12 years, Judge Kavanaugh has served on the D.C. Circuit, which is often considered a stepping stone to the Supreme Court. He's written more than 300 opinions and demonstrated that he's a judge who tries to interpret the Constitution and laws according to their text. Judge Kavanaugh has said that the text of the law is the law, and judges aren't authorized to rewrite laws simply because they think they should be updated. He's written extensively, both on and off the bench, about separation of powers and statutory interpretation, and he's co-authored a book on judicial precedent. The Senate Judiciary Committee will hold a hearing in three weeks to examine Judge Kavanaugh's record and judicial philosophy. And today we have a panel of distinguished experts here to discuss Judge Kavanaugh's most significant rulings in the areas of individual rights, administrative law, and national security, some of which may come up during the hearing. Uh, So in order to get to our panelists, I'm going to keep their introductions very brief. First up is Justin Walker. He's an assistant professor of law at the University of Louisville's Brandeis School of Law. He previously served at Gibson, uh, worked at Gibson Dunn here in Washington, in addition to serving as a speechwriter for Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. He clerked for Judge Kavanaugh and Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. He's a graduate of Duke University and Harvard Law School, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that he and I are both graduates of Sacred Heart Model School, a grade school in Louisville. Go Bears! Next up is Chris Walker. He's an associate professor of law at the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law, where he researches administrative law, regulation, and law and policy at the agency level. He's a public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States, and before entering academia, Chris served in the Justice Department, representing federal agencies and defending federal regulations in a variety of contexts. He clerked for Judge Alex Kaczynski on the Ninth Circuit and Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court. He has a BA uh, from Brigham Young University, a master's in public policy from Harvard, and a JD from Stanford. Then we'll hear from Jennifer Mascott. She is an assistant professor of law at George Mason University's Scalia Law School, where she teaches administrative law and fed courts. She's also a public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Jennifer clerked for Judge Kavanaugh in his first year on the bench. I think she was actually the first law clerk that he hired, um, and also for Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. She's a graduate of the University of Maryland and the George Washington University Law School. And last but not least, we'll hear from Jamil Jaffer, who is an adjunct professor of law at George Mason, where he runs the National Security Law Program. Jamil worked in the Justice Department's Office of Legal Policy and in the White House Counsel's Office during the Bush administration. 
and he served as the chief counsel and senior advisor for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and senior counsel to the House Intelligence Committee. He was one of Neil Gorsuch's first law clerks on the Tenth Circuit and at the Supreme Court. Jamil is a graduate of UCLA, the University of Chicago Law School, and the United States Naval War College. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Justin. Thanks very much. Thanks. See all of you. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, Judge Kavanaugh's, a few of his opinions about individual rights. Uh, there's not enough time to go through all of them. He's been on the bench for 12 years. He's written 300 different opinions. Uh, hopefully you've watched enough cable news or uh, read enough Kavanaugh coverage to know that 13 of his opinions have been endorsed by the United States Supreme Court, which I think suggests that all of the opinions we're going to talk about today are very much within the mainstream. I mean, all of these opinions, not all of the ones we're going to talk about, but all of those 13 were, um, you know, in, endorsed not just by the most conservative members of the court, but uh, by the court's um, uh, le less conservative members, including sometimes unanimous opinions. Uh, so since there's not time to cover all individual liberties, I'll start with uh, the First Amendment and get all the way to the Second. <laughs> um, and I want to highlight four of Judge Kavanaugh's uh, opinions, two free speech opinions, um, a religious liberty opinion, and um, a Second Amendment opinion, gun rights. So on free speech, uh, Judge Kavanaugh, one of his more recent opinions on the First Amendment concerned the Obama administration's net neutrality law. And uh, the other panelists can can uh, sp speak more eloquently uh, and in depth about the first part of that opinion, which concerned whether or not a 1934 statute authorized the FCC to regulate the internet. Um, I think the date. Well, I'll, I'll let the pass. Uh, the uh, second part of the opinion suggests uh, a. a First Amendment violation with the net neutrality law. And it's based on two opinions by the court in Turner Broadcasting 1 and 2. And in Turner Broadcasting 1 and 2, the court suggested that the federal government cannot kind of commandeer um, a, cable, a cable network, a cable uh, provider rather, and force them to carry content unless uh, there's a, a kind of a monopoly issue uh, that would survive intermediate scrutiny. And so – the kind of principle behind that is that, um, you know, a newspaper does not have to be, in Ben Franklin's word, a stagecoach with seats for everyone. Uh, so if I want to create a, the Wall Street, publish the Wall Street Journal, if I want to publish the New York Times, I, as the owner of that newspaper, have some control over the content that gets published. And um, cable providers sit in a similar situation according to Turner 1 and Turner 2. Uh, we can debate whether or not those cases were correctly decided, but in Judge Kavanaugh's uh, position on the D.C. Circuit, he was bound to apply them. Uh, and so he analogizes cable uh, internet providers, rather, to um, them. And he says, uh, here's a quote, if the relevant communications market and the competitive market, the theory is that the marketplace itself will both generate and provide room for a diversity and multiplicity of voices without a need or justification for government interference with private editorial choices. That's the lesson of the critical sentence in Buckley v. Vallejo. It's the lesson of Turner Broadcasting, and indeed, it is the lesson of the entire history of First Amendment and competition law. 
So in the second opinion uh, by Judge Kavanaugh, this one from earlier in his tenure as a judge called, called Emily's List, um, you see him applying these neutral principles uh, in order to side with a uh, political action group uh, that is on the left side of politics. And so uh, for, you know, for those out there who um, worry about judges, um, in Justice Kagan's word, weaponizing the First Amendment in order to help their own political causes, you know, I think this is a good example of a Republican-appointed judge applying the First Amendment in a neutral, independent, fair-minded, mainstream way in a case that helped Emily's List, a, a uh, liberal group that, that supports abortion rights and uh, female um, pro-choice candidates. Uh, what he said there is that the FEC's regulation of these groups was invalid because the FEC was restricting how much money they could spend to speak. And he distinguished, as the Supreme Court has done, regulations on donations directly to candidates, which can be regulated under Buckley. And he distinguished that from a nonprofit organization like Emily's Lists, expenditures on um, advocacy and speech. Uh, this was before Citizens United was uh, decided. And it suggested um, a, a principle that it's just not the government's job to tell people, we want to hear less from you. Um, so I'll move from free speech to uh, religion. Uh, in a case called Newdow v. Roberts, um, a plaintiff challenged the saying of a prayer at the presidential inauguration and also challenged the use of the phrase under God during the presidential oath. And uh, Judge Kavanaugh's opinion, I think, is noteworthy for several reasons. One is um, he sides uh, against that plaintiff, but he shows the kind of fair-minded thoughtfulness that one would hope a judge would show uh, when a plaintiff is bringing a, a, a deeply held belief. Um, and so he, he approaches that issue with an open mind, and then he asks, well, what does the Supreme Court say the test should be? And in the Establishment Clause area, as uh, many of you probably know, actually I read yesterday that that phrase, as you know, is a microaggression. So scratch that. Uh, uh, as uh, you may or may not know, uh, the Establishment Clause jurisprudence I'm not sure that's any better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is uh, not the clearest area of constitutional law. Um, first of all, in terms of what tests should be applied, is it an endorsement test? Is it a coercion test? Is it history and tradition? What kind of coercion counts? But then even once you decide on what kind of test to apply, uh, it's not always clear how that test should be applied. And so you get, for example, the Supreme Court allowing one Ten Commandments display on the same day that it does not allow another Ten Commandments display. What's noteworthy about Judge Kavanaugh's opinion in Newdow is that he goes with, uh, he takes guidance from the Supreme Court's approach uh, to the issue of, and he uses history and tradition um, rather than a coercion test or an endorsement test or um, the lemon test. And um, that approach was vindicated um, several years later when the Supreme Court decided town of Greece. And in that case, there was a prayer before a local uh, government board. 
and the court, in an opinion written by Justice Kennedy for the five conservative uh, justice majority, said the prayer was okay, and it used history and tradition to do it, just as Judge Kavanaugh had done. The last issue uh, I'll mention for pass- passing the, the microphone is uh, the Second Amendment. Uh, in 2008, the Supreme Court decided that uh, Dick Heller here in D.C. had a right to a handgun in his home for self-defense, a 5-4 conservative majority. D.C. responded to that by enacting a host of other gun control measures, including a ban on semi-automatic rifles. Uh, Heller sued again. That case went to a panel on the D.C. Circuit that included Judge Kavanaugh and also two other Republican appointees, Judge Henderson and Judge Ginsburg. So you might have been thinking, well, since there are three Republican appointees, uh, Heller's claim is, is uh, you know, there's a reason for optimism there for him from his perspective. Uh, but in fact, Judge Kavanaugh was the only of the three judges uh, who said that Heller had the right to the weapon in question. And he did it not because he said uh, you know, he likes guns or dislikes guns. His policy preferences really had no bearing on the question. He uh, also noted that he understands the problems of crime. He's lived in the D.C. area for um, almost all of his life, and he recognizes that it's a, a serious issue. But he said that if you read Justice Scalia's opinion in Heller, it suggests that we don't conduct some kind of free-wielding balancing test when it comes to a fundamental right, like the right to possess um, a weapon. Uh, that kind of balancing test was done for us by the founders and the framers and the ratifiers when they put the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights. And so the question for a judge is not how great is the government interest or – um, you know, how narrowly tailored is the regulation in question. The question for the judge, the question for the court is, is this type of regulation consistent with our history and our tradition? And uh, in 52 long pages, Judge Kavanaugh's dissent goes through uh, a really thorough, uh, thoughtful uh, analysis of the history and uh, concludes that um, there's not a history and tradition um uh, that would allow the banning of these weapons. So uh, four opinions. I'm looking forward to hearing about uh, lots more in uh, in other areas of the law. Thanks. Thank you. Chris? So, tough act to follow, free speech, religion, guns, and to have to talk about administrative law. Uh, administrative law is the law that governs how federal agencies regulate us and how courts review those regulations uh, we live in an era today where most lawmaking is done by federal agencies, not by Congress, not by courts. To provide like an imperfect snapshot of that, if you look at the 2015 to 2016 period, federal agencies promulgated over 3,000 final rules that took up over 60,000 pages in the Federal Register. During that same period, the 114th Congress passed 329 public laws uh, taking up about 3,000 pages uh, in the statutes at large. And so we live in an era where lawmaking by regulation predominates. And so it was exciting to me to see President Trump nominate someone from the D.C. Circuit, uh, which is our, uh, uh, by congressional design, a, a court that specializes in administrative law, sees the vast I don't say the vast majority. That's probably an overstatement because immigration cases work their way through the other circuits. But it's the preeminent administrative law court that we have in the United States. Uh, and Judge Kavanaugh is uh, one of the most sophisticated and creative 
uh, jurists in the federal judiciary when it comes to administrative law. So as an administrative law professor, this is a geek fest. Uh, I thought Gorsuch was fun. This is even more sophisticated and fun. Uh, and my bottom line is that if you were hoping for a deconstruction of the administrative state, as Steve Bannon said during the campaign, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh is someone who cares deeply about administrative law and regulatory practice. Uh, in fact, I think some of the claims you're seeing are a little bit fun. In the Washington Post last week, a law professor said, quote, this is the end of the regulatory state as we know it. If Judge Kavanaugh goes up there, there will never we they will never find a regulation they will find acceptable. Um, that's just really not a, an accurate reading of the record, and we have a very very substantial record here. In his over a dozen years on the court, he's written over 120 decisions that deal with administrative law, and I can't cover all of them here. I will say, while we're not going to see a deconstruction of the administrative state, not to kind of bury the lead. Judge, Judge Kavanaugh is someone who's going to rein in the administrative state or do a tighter leash, as Jacob Gershon said in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and you'll see that, and I'll, I'll, I'll sketch that out in kind of two different contexts in, in the time that I have remaining to kind of give you a sense of how he would do that. And this, these contexts are explained much in much more detail in a SCOTUS blog post I did a couple of weeks ago on Judge Kavanaugh's administrative law jurisprudence. So the first is Chevron deference. So Chevron deference is a hot topic in administrative law. Uh, this is the doctrine the Supreme Court established in 1984 that said that federal agencies, not courts, are the primary interpreters of statutes, of ambiguous statutes that the agency administers. So it shifts the law interpretive power, at least with respect to certain statutes that, that agencies administer, from courts uh, to federal agencies. This, at the time, was part of a conservative movement. This is the Reagan administration. It was a deregulatory action. In recent years, uh, there's been frequent criticism of Chevron deference, largely from those right of center, perhaps tired of seeing the Obama administration do be very creative uh, through regulation uh, when they couldn't achieve that goal through legislation. Uh, and so that's this is going to be a core issue at the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee hearing in three weeks. It was with Justice Gorsuch, and I think it will be with Justice uh, with Judge Kavanaugh as well. And there are kind of three different ways that Judge Kavanaugh would narrow Chevron deference or affect Chevron deference of the Supreme Court. Uh, the first is he's a lot like Justice Scalia when it comes to interpreting statutes. He's a textualist. And he's a textualist like Justice Scalia is a textualist, not like some others. He uses all the tools of statutory interpretation uh, to eliminate ambiguities. And that matters under Chevron because if the statute is unambiguous, the agency doesn't get any deference. Uh, that's kind of the first step of Chevron. Uh, and for Judge Kavanaugh and his opinions, uh, you see him finding statutes unambiguous more often than a lot of his peers. In fact, at a lecture he gave here last year, he explained that in a really eloquent way, building on a Harvard Law Review book review that he had written, where he says, you know, some judges want to be 90% certain that a statute is unambiguous before they declare it unambiguous under Chevron. I'm probably closer, this is him, uh, to 60, 65 percent. So he'll use the tools and say, if it's fairly certain, I'm not going to defer to the federal, to the federal agency. It's actually quite similar to an opinion from the Supreme Court this last term written by Justice Gorsuch in a Wisconsin case where he said that the standard should be, um, clear enough 
So it's not crystal clear, but a clear enough standard. So I, the first way I think you'll see Justice a Justice Kavanaugh differ perhaps from his former boss, Justice Kennedy, is he's much more of a textualist. He's going to find statutes unambiguous, which will leave federal agencies with less room to maneuver. The second way actually builds on a case that Justin's already talked about, which is the net neutrality regulation case. In the dissent from denial over hearing and bank, Justice Kavanaugh, in the first half of that decision, explains at, le- at length his approach to the major questions doctrine, which is an exception to Chevron deference. Uh, this exception got a lot of fanfare uh, in the Obamacare statutory challenge and made it to the Supreme Court, King v. Burwell, because there, Chief Justice Roberts, writing for a six-justice majority, applied it and said, you know what? When it comes to statutory ambiguities that invoke a major political or economic question, we're not going to defer to the agency. Here, you're asking us to defer to the IRS uh, about how to regulate billions of dollars in a health market. Uh, that's a major question. The IRS doesn't have the expertise. We're not going to defer. We're going to decide ourselves. Of course, Chief Justice Roberts still found a way for the IRS to win on, you know, de novo review, but, but there's this major question exception to Chevron deference. Uh, in the net neutrality regulation, Judge Kavanaugh confronted the major questions doctrine and embraced it, uh, as he should. It's a Supreme Court precedent. Uh, and said this applies here as well, regulating uh, the internet uh, in this way uh, is not uh, is a major um, political and economic question. Congress has not spoken clearly, uh, and so we're not going to defer to the agency. We're going to decide this ourselves. Now, if we had more time, I'd s- explain. He actually took it a step further, uh, and it, not only do you not get Chevron deference for Judge Kavanaugh in that opinion, you'd say that you wouldn't even the agency wouldn't even have the authority to regulate. Uh, unless there were a clear statement from Congress to the contrary. So that's the second way you see that, that you might have a judge, a Justice Kavanaugh narrowing Chevron deference. And the third I'm not going to spend as much time on. It's fascinating. I would encourage you to go read uh, the, the story lecture that the Heritage Foundation published, uh, that he, that he did, delivered last fall that they published in January. There he actually explains kind of a deeper concern with Chevron deference, uh, with it being misapplied. And suggest that we should perhaps narrow it and only ha- allow for deference when there's an open-ended statutory grant of authority and not when it's a specific statutory provision. Uh, and his reasoning there is out of political accountability, his worries that judges are going to be inserting policy preferences. On the flip side, his, uh, his, his idea that there's more, that judges can just say what statutes mean, uh, but they, they shouldn't be making policy decisions. So that's kind of the Chevron side. Um, I think at the end of the day, actually, another kind of along the same point, if you read Justice Kennedy's concurrence in Pereira at the end of this term where he expressed concerns of Chevron deference, his concerns look a lot like what just Judge Kavanaugh is saying in the story lecture. Uh, so you'll see a judge uh, that will probably be open to narrowing Chevron deference uh, by finding statutes unambiguous, by not giving agencies the authority to uh, interpret major questions uh, and perhaps by kind of reining in some of the lower court mischief that he – at least he views as mischief there. Um, the second area is under the Administrative Procedure Act, arbitrary and capricious review. And I'm not going to spend as much time on this, but Judge Kavanaugh is uh, – takes hard look review seriously under the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, the most prominent decision is one that led to the Michigan v. EPA decision at the Supreme Court. Uh, where Judge Kavanaugh in dissent at the D.C. Circuit said, when the statute says necessary and appropriate, that means that the EPA must consider costs. 
Uh, so under the Administrative Procedure Act, ultimately a 5-4 conservative majority of the court endorsed that position. But you get from that uh, a reading that Justice Kavanaugh is going to look at the agency's decision, is going to ask, do they consider all the statutory factors? Are they acting within their statutory authority? Uh, do they consider counter-arguments? There were you know, substantial counter-arguments. Do they otherwise follow all the procedures that Congress requires? If not, the agency is not going to be able to regulate. We're going to send it back. If so, then the agency wins, right? And if you look at his record, agencies win, agencies lose under hard-look review. Sometimes it's a liberal win when the agency loses. Sometimes it's a conservative win. Uh, you see a judge that, in my opinion, is quite principled in applying uh, the Administrative Procedure Act's arbitrary and capricious review standard. I will say there have been a number of environmental law professors, and I'll conclude on this, that have worried about kind of the future of the administrative state under the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, and and I'll, I'll pull one quote from a, a Professor Michael Livermore, uh, said, given congressional gridlock, notice and comment rulemaking by environmental agencies has become the primary vehicle for environmental progress over the past several decades. Replacing Kennedy with Kavanaugh will make this um, more difficult, halting and fraught with risk. Uh, I actually agree with that, uh, that getting back to where I started, Congress is not legislating. Uh, agencies are using stale statutes that haven't been updated in decades uh, to, let, to, to make major decisions that affect our everyday lives. And, and a Justice Kavanaugh is not going to give that a free pass. If the statute doesn't allow the agency to regulate, a Justice Kavanaugh isn't going to let the agency regulate. He's going to say, Congress, you've got to go and pass legislation. So in that sense, I do think that some of these um, concerns raised by administrative law and environmental law professors, uh, are, are there's, some, there's some foundation to them. Some of us wouldn't view those as concerns, though. <laughs> some of us would think that Congress should legislate, that if there's an issue of major political or economic significance – that Congress should take the lead and should say, yes, agency, here are our instructions for how you deal with X, Y, or Z. Uh, so in a Justice Kavanaugh, you're going to see someone motivated by separation of powers, and I'll leave that for Jen because I think that's what she's going to talk about next, uh, that's going to hold agencies accountable to what Congress has told them that they can and can't do. Um, and, and quite frankly, I think in some ways that's going to be more searching than Justice Kennedy, but we're not going to see a deconstruction of the administrative state. Thank you. So thanks to Heritage for um, having this event today. It's a great honor to be a former law clerk of Judge Kavanaugh and be here talking about his record. Um, you know, Supreme Court nomination and confirmation process is obviously a very serious and weighty thing. And so I think it's great that we're able to take a close look at Judge, Rec at Judge Kavanaugh's record and glad that you all are here to uh, talk about that. As Justice mentioned, Justin mentioned, he's got quite an extensive record, more than 300 opinions, um, a number of which were adopted with their reasoning later by the Supreme Court. Uh, cited repeatedly by the Supreme Court. Um, and so I'm going to peel off a piece of uh, Justice Kavanaugh or Judge Judge Kavanaugh's jurisprudence today dealing with some structural safeguards for government that are in the Constitution. And I think Judge Kavanaugh's really written a lot about uh, this and his jurisprudence. And I, there are two themes that a lot of his opinions and his separate writings and his law review articles talk about. One is the safeguard of separation of powers. And that's a term, obviously, that we use to talk about the fact that the three branches of government at the federal level all under the Constitution have different roles to play. And so Judge Kavanaugh's told us quite 
quite a lot about what he thinks the proper roles are under the Constitution of the three various branches. Another structural safeguard that's actually a distinct safeguard then involves um, the president and his role within the executive branch. And I think the executive branch comes up a lot because it's obviously arguably the most complex branch with a lot of layers, a lot of administrative agencies. And so Judge Kavanaugh has written quite a bit about what the executive's proper role is in being able to supervise that branch. Um, and so these themes come out a lot in his writings. And basically, he has really emphasized that um, to keep accountability in government, that the role of Congress and the role of the executive as being the elected branches of government is to really be playing the lead in making policy, carrying out policy. And he has con- um, conceptualized the role of a judge as that of more of an umpire. And so, you know, calling balls and strikes. And so that doesn't always mean that a judge is not going to step in, uh, but it means that a judge is going to try to be independent, fair-minded, look at neutral principles, as Chris talked about in cases. And so Judge Kavanaugh's written a lot in general about how um, if the Constitution says that branches are supposed to operate a particular way or if Congress has passed a statute um, regulating the executive in a certain way, then it's the role of the judge certainly to step in and apply the law. But where, you know, there isn't a statutory limitation or constitutional limitation, a judge obviously isn't supposed to inject policy preferences and, you know, neutrally leave things up to the political branches. Um, and I, Judge Kavanaugh's also written about the importance of the principles. I mean, not just to formalistically apply the rules in the Constitution, which would be good in and of itself in the sense that we're obviously a government that focuses on the rule of law, but that ultimately these safeguards of the separation of powers get back to individual liberties and individual rights because by federal power being divided among three branches, you know, multiple actors have to agree before a step is taken that regulates private rights. Um, And then also on the side of the executive branch and having accountability there for the president is the president's the only elected actor in the executive branch. Um, You know, we as the public have a role in bringing responsibility there only to the extent that the president who's elected is able to oversee what's what's going on. So I don't know if you all have had a chance to read um, any of Judge Kavanaugh's questionnaire that he submitted to the Senate in preparation for the hearings, but one of the questions he's asked is, what are his 10 most significant opinions? And I think in his answer there, you can really see the focus of his jurisprudence, in part because of the court on which he sits, as, as Chris mentioned, which sees lots of agency cases. But it's been themes of separation of power. So he lists his 2008 opinion in Free Enterprise Fund versus Public Company County Oversight Board. And there are a number of things to see about Judge Kavanaugh and his understanding of the law in that opinion. First, what I think is really interesting is that as a relatively junior judge at the time, he's in his second year on the bench at that point, um, is writing a dissent. So he's already being independent. He's clearly applying the laws. He understands it, even though in that particular case, it put him at odds with his colleagues. Um, he also is right off the bat influential in the sense that two years later, the Supreme Court, in an opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts, ends up basically coming down on the side that Judge Kavanaugh had laid out in his opinion of feeling as though there were not, um, there was not a, the proper kind of accountability for executive power in the structure that had been set up. And just to talk a little bit about the, the facts of the case, and, and this is how we can see more of Judge Kavanaugh's understanding of democratic accountability. Um, the Securities and Exchange Commission, as you all probably know is what we think of as an independent agency. So the commissioners are appointed by the president, but then, you know, are limited in terms of how they can be fired. So it's not like a cabinet secretary where if the president doesn't like a decision a commissioner makes, the president can 
can just fire the commissioner or the president, at least under how the Supreme Court's interpreted the state of the law. Uh, there are tenure protections for commissioners. And what had happened in that particular case is that in the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, Congress had created another entity, the, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, that was sort of under the SEC but had quite a lot of um, independent policy direction authority. And so the court was being asked to look at whether it was okay that there were also tenure protections for these board members meaning that not only could the president not easily remove a commissioner who was not executing his policy, but this SEC could not easily um, fire a board member at the time if the board member was moving things in, in a different direction. And so you can see Judge Kavanaugh's interpretive principles in the case because he starts with the constitutional text, the vesting clause of executive power, the president's to um, take care of the laws are faithfully executed, carry out the executive power, and looked at this, the history as well in the context and this being sort of a unique structure in our system where, of course, for decades, there's been Supreme Court um, has said it's constitutional, have limitations on firing the heads of independent agencies, but that that had never been taken to this next level where then it was also hard for the independent commissioners themselves to be able to oversee what was happening within that branch of government and was that or within that, that entity. And was that appropriate for um, folks like the board members who were carrying out such important decisions? And so Judge Kavanaugh you know, wrote an opinion saying, no, which the Supreme Court later um, later agreed with. And that general idea of, of accountability, which Judge Kavanaugh thought was important, um, again, for you know public responsibility, um, has been a theme throughout other opinions. His, his career so far in the D.C. Circuit has been bookended and then on the back end with a similar um, opinion in PHH versus CFPB, where um, in a dissenting opinion before the en banc court earlier this year, Judge Kavanaugh talked about another unique agency structure, the head of the um, Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, and whether um, it's it's constitutional for that agency, which operates in a lot of ways like an independent agency, then to be headed by just one person instead of the multiple um, heads that we have at the top of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and again, raise questions about whether a, a president who's elected can fully carry out the agenda that the public's um, elected the president to carry out if the president's um, impacted in being able to supervise what, what's going on there. And Judge uh, Judge Kavanaugh then carried that out again in another opinion, um, dealing with a little bit different issue in 2012, uh, an Aiken County decision, which is also interesting with the theme of executive accountability, because in that case, the issue was whether um, nuclear waste was going to continue to be stored at a facility called Yucca Mountain. And there was a, in that case, the dispute was over whether, uh, at least the particular issue Judge Kavanaugh was looking at in his concurring opinion, was whether the independent Nuclear Regulatory Commission or the more directly um, accountable to the President Department of Energy would have the final say on whether the administration was going to continue to apply to um, store uh, waste at Yucca Mountain. And so um, Judge Kavanaugh spent some time in his concurring opinion ta- uh, talking about how, again, because at the end of the day, the source of accountability for government is is the people and is it elections, that in big policymaking decisions that it would seem more appropriate within the constitutional structure for greater weight to be given to the um 
to the Department of Energy, which was a little bit more closely accountable to the president. I think that opinion, concurring opinion, is remarkable for two additional reasons. One is because it shows, again, the theme Chris was talking about, which is the neutral application of principles and this idea of um, accountability, regardless of what political party is in power, regardless of whether it's going to end up being a pro-agency or negative agency or pro-regulation or anti-regulation decision. Because at the time of that case, um, it was it was President Obama who was in power. And Judge Kavanaugh, in that opinion, and others talked about how important it is that if a president runs and is elected on being able to carry out campaign promises, that the president be able to make the key policy decisions that need to be made in carrying out the executive's role um, that Congress has authorized the executive to play. And so he emphasized that uh, with this and his his um, approach in that case would have, um, if the court had ruled on that issue, um, been in favor of President Obama being able to withdraw the application to store nuclear waste um, as he had had wanted to do. The other thing that's relevant about that opinion, though, is Judge Kavanaugh tells us a little bit about his view of precedent towards the back end of that opinion, and he talks about how even though it's relevant to think about independent agencies versus executive agencies in terms of uh, which agency should have a role for which issue, that the Supreme Court, in a case called Humphrey's Executor from decades earlier, had already decided the issue of the constitutionality of independent agencies that was binding precedent needed to be respected. And so he emphasized that and told us a little bit about his understanding of of stare decisis and longstanding precedent um, in that case. Uh, just just quickly um, touching on a couple of more um, opinions that get a little bit more into regulation itself, um, moving on with the theme of neutral principles. The first couple of cases that I talked about were about the principle of, you know, the executive and how much supervision there needs to be within the executive branch. But Judge Kavanaugh's also written at least as much about the role of Congress and its interplay with the executive as well, and talking about how Congress when it has enacted a statute, if it's supporting agency action and agency regulation, that that needs to be adhered to, um, just the same as if um, an agency seems to be going outside of its outside of its role. And so, there's a pair of cases involving the EPA um, that I think illustrate this point. Uh, in 2012, in Coalition for Responsible Regulation versus EPA, Judge Kavanaugh um, said in a, in a dissenting opinion that he thought the EPA had too expansively interpreted its authority to regulate greenhouse gases through its interpretation of the phrase air pollutant in a statute. Um, But then just the very next year, um, a similar question came up in Center for Biological Diversity versus EPA in the same kind of statutory provisions. And Judge Kavanaugh, in that second opinion, ended up writing an opinion that would have been actually quite pro-regulation, where he talked about how the D.C. Circuit had reached an interpretation different from his own in the in the prior case. Precedent needed to be adhered to. It needed to be neutrally applied. And in the 2013 case, the EPA actually had more authority or responsibility to be permitting um, in the area of uh, requiring permits in the area of carbon dioxide emissions, uh, maybe than the EPA even even thought it had. So you see a person who's very um, much case by case looking to what's the relevant legal authority, regardless of whether it's going to come out um, on one policy side or the other. Um, and just one um, one other way that that plays out as well is I, you know, Judge Kavanaugh and Jamil, I think we'll talk a little bit about more about this in the area of national security. But Judge Kavanaugh has um, 
advocated and noted the role of Congress, not just in restraining or guiding how agencies can act in regulation, but also in other areas of power that are shared by the executive and Congress in the national security area and international affairs as well. Judge Kavanaugh has talked about the role of Congress in in regulating or having standards um, for the executive branch and how um, it's the role of courts to be able to make make sure that um, that those limits are being adhered to. Um, and so sometimes I think Judge Kavanaugh's opinions, particularly that I talked about on the front end with Free Enterprise Fund and uh, PHH, have been interpreted as being pro-presidential power. And I, I think that's actually really the wrong way to look at Judge Kavanaugh's jurisprudence. What, what he's been looking at is two separate issues. So within the area where the executive lawfully operates, Judge Kavanaugh is saying that for our, you know, individual freedom to be protected, the elected officer there has to be able to supervise what happens within the executive branch. And then it's a separate and distinct issue how much power the executive branch should carry out in relation to the amount of role that Congress has. And Congress has, as we know, quite a bit of a role in setting policy for the uh, federal government and then also at times in partnering with the executive in some of the foreign relations areas. And so Judge Kavanaugh's focused on those areas um, as well. So with that, I'll turn it to Jamil. Thank you, Jamil. Great. Well, uh, thanks, Elizabeth, and thanks to uh, my panelists, Justin, Chris, and Jen, uh, for coming today to the Heritage Foundation for having us. Um, I, I, what I'd like to talk about today is uh, Judge Kavanaugh's record in national security cases. And uh, I stupidly scheduled myself, so I have a, a hard stop at once. So I'm going to keep it very short because I want to have the time for questions, um, and, and, and I'll stick around as long as I can. Um, but I think the theme that you take from uh, Judge Kavanaugh's cases – in the national security arena is this is this construct of separation of powers and the idea that each of the coordinate branches of government has a critically important role to play in these national security cases. We historically as a nation have thought of national security and foreign policy as an area largely in the control of the president. Um, and what's interesting about that is that when you look at the Constitution on its face, there are a tremendous number of powers assigned both to the president and to Congress. And on a, on a sort of numerical basis alone, Congress has a lot more power uh, if you just counted up the number of times the national security or foreign policy matters are mentioned in the Constitution, then the president does. The president primarily has the executive power, has a commander-in-chief power, which is and has been understood to be uh, quite important and quite significant. Uh, but Congress has a large number of things, whether it's uh, the regulation of foreign trade, the, pow- the power to declare war, the power to raise and support armies. And what you see in Judge Kavanaugh's opinions is a recognition of that role, the role of Congress in constraining presidential authority in war-making and in, in regulating presidential authority in the conduct of foreign policy and the like. At the same time, uh, Judge Kavanaugh's opinions demonstrate a healthy respect for the role of the political branches in making these choices, but not a role of, not a recognition, not simply a recognition that they have the primary role, but also recognition that courts too have a role here. So it's not that the courts aren't important and don't have something to do, but that their job is to ensure that when the political branches are tangling in the space, that each one is given their due. And so if you look at his opinion in a case like Al-Shifa where he had a concurring opinion, he notes the importance of courts actually deciding these cases and not just kicking, uh, as courts have done historically in the national security arena, kicking cases on the political question doctrine. And so he says, no, courts have an important role to play here because – in an area where, for example, Congress has sought to regulate the national security authorities of the president through statute, if the courts decide not to do anything and to kick it on political question grounds, they've essentially 
moved in favor of the executive branch because the executive authority stands. They're, the executive decision to act stands, no matter that Congress has sought to regulate that decision. And so it's important, I think, for Judge Kavanaugh for courts to play their role, which is at times policing that separation of powers, ensuring that the coordinate branches, particularly the coordinate political branches, play the role they're supposed to. At the same time, what you see in Justice Kavanaugh and Judge in Judge Kavanaugh's opinions is a is a recognition that um, when Congress does act, that Congress also doesn't have unlimited authority. That there are things that Congress might do that could contravene the Constitution, and so to the extent that you're interpreting congressional action, you you interpret it to avoid. For example, retroactivity of criminal statutes and criminal law. And you see that even in the Gitmo construct where you'd think, well, this guy was a Bush administration lawyer, served as staff secretary to the president. You know, he's going to be pro-government. And what you find out is it's not about being pro-government or anti-government. What's a, what it's about is enforcing the rules as Congress has written them and the Constitution as our framers understood it to be. Um, and so, and so when you see there in those cases, there are cases where he's determined that the law can't be applied to these Gitmo detainees because at the time of their conduct, the law wasn't in place. And so that's an important thing to see in Judge Kavanaugh's opinions, which is a recognition of the important role of each of the branches and a recognition of the role of, of governments in constraining individual action, but also the importance of individual civil liberties and their own rights under the law and constitution of the United States. And so uh, what you see here is a judge who's a judge's judge. A judge who uh, doesn't try to make it up as he goes along, but tries to interpret the law consistent with the text written by uh, by members of Congress and the political branches, and the Constitution as understood by the people who wrote it, and as understood uh, by those who exposited it at that time. And so uh, that's an important thing as we talk about uh, the potential nomination of or the nomination of a judge uh, to the bench uh, to the Supreme Court. You want a judge who has a healthy respect for the role of each branch, including his or her own. And that's the kind of judge that you see in Judge Kavanaugh. We have an extensive record. You've already heard about the 300 opinions he's written, 184,000 pages of material uh, given to the Judiciary Committee. Um, so this idea somehow that there's not enough paperwork, there's not enough material, um, and that September 4th, which is longer than any other modern uh, judge or nominee is awaited confirmation, it's just ridiculous, and I'm hoping that we'll see a, a swift uh, effort of the Judiciary Committee and rapid action on the floor. Thank you. Well, with that, we're going to open it up for questions, so please wait for uh, the microphone. I think we have some – yeah, we have a microphone, and then um, identify yourself and keep it brief. Back here. Thank you, panel. Um, should I stand or uh, – Sure. Oh. <laughs> Never mind. I'll just sit. So. <laughs> you. <laughs> My name is Ziad Aziz. I'm a policy analyst for Six Point Strategies, which is a consulting firm in DuPont Circle. My question concerns the Savensky case, um, Savensky versus Holder, which was the Obamacare case. Some people, such as like Judge Napolitano on Fox News, said that Judge Kavanaugh upheld Obamacare, which I don't think to be true. Um, how would you explain that dissent, and how would you explain his dissent in the 2014, or the, rather the 2014 or the 2015 Obamacare case regarding the origination clause? Like to take that? Anybody? I can start. Okay. Um, so, I think what you see in the the first case you mentioned um, is a textualist judge who cares a lot about the words of the statute and who does not care 
about passion or prejudice for any particular party or any particular policy outcome. Uh, the threshold question in that case was whether or not a statute called the Anti-Injunction Act required a challenger to the ACA individual mandate to wait until the tax penalty had been assessed before challenging the constitutionality of the individual mandate tax penalty. Um, and Judge Kavanaugh had written extensively about the Anti-Injunction Act uh, in previous cases, including a case that went on bonk, um, relatively obscure case called Cohen, but it was, it was very important to the parties. There was a lot at stake. And um, he, he interpreted the Anti-Injunction Act to require that a challenge to the individual mandates penalty um, be delayed. Uh, and, you know, I think that that is a question that reasonable people can agree and disagree about. But um, what I take from that is not just how did he decide that issue, but what do we learn about how he will decide all issues? And I think the, the answer to that question is Judge Kavanaugh goes where the law leads. He goes where the text of the statute leads. Um, you know, Justice Kagan has, has said in a few speeches that in a, in a world that has been shaped by Justice Scalia's textualism, that we are all textualists now uh, to a degree. And uh, to the extent that there's a spectrum of how faithful a judge is going to be to text, as informed by structure, as informed by history, as informed by precedent, um, on that spectrum, I think Judge Kavanaugh is very much toward the side that sees the judge's role as a limited role. Um, he used to tell us in chambers uh, and in his uh, separation of powers class that he taught when I was in law school, uh, he would tell us every case is a separation of powers case, even when that claim is not raised. And what he meant is that every case requires the judge to remember the proper limited role of the judiciary in our tripartite structure. That is the executive and it's the legislative that make policy and it's the judge's role not to invent law, but simply to apply the law. Now, those are a few thoughts um, on a, a very big topic. I, I would say my co-blogger, Aaron Nilsson, at the Yale Journal Regulation has a, a blog post on, on, on the first case there. And I mean, quite frankly, I, he's had this itch for the Anti-Injunction Act. I, I don't agree with him. I think he's wrong. I would consider it a reasonable position. I think it's wrong. <laughs> uh, and I think if you read Kristen Hickman's article on the Anti-Injunction Act that came out after that, I think it was motivated in part by Judge Kavanaugh's uh, you know, opinion there. Uh, it, he's just wrong, right? I mean, he's reading the statute. He, it's, it's not – I mean, he didn't uphold Obamacare. He didn't answer the question, right? He said that the Anti-Injunction Anti Act bars it. And reasonable people can disagree about that. And I think Aaron's post on the Yale Journal Regulation blog has some pretty good insight on that. I don't know much about the origination clause. I didn't follow that one as closely. I mean, I think the one thing, the one thing I would just say about this is, you know, um, we as conservatives talk a lot about uh, the importance of judges adhering to text and to an original understanding of the Constitution. But when we don't like that, we revolt. We say, oh, well, that person did this and this person did that and I, I don't like this judge or this justice. But the truth is, as conservatives, we should be looking at, their, at the methodology of a judge. 
and the role of the judge. And what you want, as Justice Gorsuch once said, is you want a judge who understands that he he or she wears a robe, not a cape. And sometimes that means decisions don't come out the way that we as conservatives might like. And that's good. That's the job of a judge. A good judge doesn't come out the way they want every time. That's a willful judge. You don't want a willful judge. You don't want a willful justice. We've seen decades of those in the Supreme Court. That is not good for democracy. That is not what our Constitution intended, and that is not what you want for a nominee to the federal bench, whether it's to the appellate level or, the, or more importantly, the Supreme Court. Elizabeth, can I just add one yeah. more thing that I forgot because I don't want to be accused of being inconsistent with something <laughs> I wrote online about this exact topic. And On the question of the constitutionality of the individual mandate, Judge Kavanaugh did say that it may be unprecedented, this type of individual mandate, and uh, that there may be um, a, a problem with, with it not having a limiting principle. And if you look at the roadmap that the Supreme Court followed in saying that the Commerce Clause did not authorize the individual mandate, um, it was it was very similar to those two themes that Judge Kavanaugh struck. So um, I just want to make sure that I'm not accused of inconsistency. Other questions? Down here. Uh, Tom Jipping, I'm Deputy Director of the Mies Legal Center here at Heritage. Um, let's say you walk out the front door after the event and Mr. and Mrs. Average American are walking by and they ask you the question that's the title of the event today. What kind of judge is Judge Kavanaugh? And, you know, being professors, you want to spend the afternoon with them, but you only have a <laughs> sentence or two. How, how would you answer that question to the layman in, in, a, in a very brief way? I would say that Judge Kavanaugh is an independent, fair-minded judge who is looking to apply the text of statutes and the Constitution with all the context and relevant history and precedent that there is, case by case, looking fairly at the issues. Yeah, Judge Kavanaugh's jurisprudence is motivated by separation of powers. Uh, He wants to make sure that Congress is doing its job, that the president does his or her job, and the federal agencies are following the commands of both. And you see that really strongly. I love the idea that you see separation of powers in every single case. As he's always trying to figure out why does he care that we follow the statute? Because Congress is the one that makes the law. Uh, and you see that repeatedly through his decisions. Now, are there reasonable disagreements? Sure. Um, but he's the type of judge that's going to look at a statute, look at a law, and apply it uh, neutrally and fairly to try to reach the decision uh, that most in line with what uh, Congress had intended. I think we have time for one more question. Considering that uh, courts and uh, judges practically have become disconnected from the average American and uh, are on the not control or benefit of attorneys or special interests and those with financial needs. What do you think that uh, Judge uh, Kavanaugh would have on, uh, as a Supreme Court justice to improve this issue and uh, is disconnecting with the society to be somehow uh, eliminated or at least get in some uh, less than uh, more and more is 
courts and judges and everything is becoming specialized that average people don't understand that the, at the same time that everybody is supposed to know the law. Well, I think um, t- two things. I mean, first of all, with um, Judge Kavanaugh's understanding of the role of the branches and, and judges as being more that of umpire applying the law, I mean, that philosophy played out is going to, in the end, lead to the elected branches, your member of Congress, your senator, the president, reaching a greater number of decisions, having more influence over the direction of the country right now than sometimes we turn to the Supreme Court for. So I think that in and of itself helps with the common person because the common person or the average person, the public, can see, can talk to more readily, and it's more appropriate to talk to and lobby their elected representative. Um, So if that person's making more of the decisions, that keeps things real a little bit more. And then the second thing, you know, in his role as a judge writing and deciding cases, just as a very practical brass tax matter, Judge Kavanaugh, somebody who's very interested in the craft of writing to the extent that he is writing in a clear way that for sure he, he would want the first-year law student, the average member of the public, the person reading the newspaper, to be able to understand opinions, writing in shorter sentence structures, clearly explaining ideas, um, and so even in that way, I think um, trying to make sure that the decisions being reached are something that's more accessible and we're not sort of hiding behind a shroud of legalese or big ideas, but expl- the judge explaining um, his or her reasoning. I, th- I think there definitely are judges out there who are disconnected from the public, uh, but Judge Kavanaugh, is <laughs> he is definitely not one of those judges. I would recommend a Washington Post article where it begins by interviewing the local bartender in Judge Kavanaugh's neighborhood. And the bartender says, oh, he's been coming in for years. I didn't know he was a judge. In fact, I didn't even know he was a lawyer. He was just always Brett to me, and all we ever talked about was sports. And I think all of us who have had interactions with Judge Kavanaugh, uh, we know that he's the coach of his daughter's little basketball team. We we know that uh, you know the last time he and I had a morning meeting scheduled, he was we had to push it back because he'd been up uh, too late the night before watching the post game coverage of the Washington Capitals game <laughs> and their championship on TV. Um, so uh, you know he's an extraordinary, brilliant jurist, but he's also a very uh, down to earth and humble uh, dad and devoted husband and uh, friend and, and mentor. Well, on that positive note, we've come to the end of our time. So please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you.